0: Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. The Shepherd's Crook exists to provide care, counsel, and resources for pastors. You can get more information at shepherdscrook.co. My name is Jared Sparks, and I'm a pastor coming alongside other pastors, reminding them of the chief pastor. Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. This is episode 158. Hope everybody is doing good out there. We are well. I'm going to shoot a nice buck after this. Uh, It's Tuesday. I guess I'm gonna just start recording on Tuesdays because that's apparently what's been happening. Yesterday I was out in a tree stand with Ransom and we saw a really nice buck, a few does, called a doe in actually, just couldn't get a shot on her. And I'm going back this morning because I am gonna get that buck. I'm pretty confident anyway, so I'll have a story to tell you at some point here in the near future, hopefully, but I'm gonna get this guy. And whether it's today or sometime here in the next month or two, but he was a nice one. He was—I think he was a three or four-year-old. But anyways, before that, I gotta tell you about G3, and then we're gonna talk about the doctrine of election. But let's go ahead and pray as we always do. And guys, I don't pray in an arbitrary manner. I pray because we need to pray. We have to come before the Lord because He's our Father, and we want to come to Him and acknowledge Him and then ask for His help and then trust that the Holy Spirit's gonna lead us. Let's pray. Lord, we just need your help. We, we really do. We thank you, Jesus, that you taught us to pray, and we come to our Heavenly Father, and Father, we ask you to help us, to lead us. Holy Spirit, point us to Jesus, and as we navigate talking about the doctrine of election, there's so many people that are really just confused or frustrated about this doctrine, but God, you've made it really clear. Help us to not make things that are clear unclear because we don't like them. And so let's just be faithful to what you have to say and then trust that you're just and you're and you're right. And uh, God, I thank you for what we're talking about today because it's so awesome. We love you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are talking about the doctrine of election. We're going to be in Romans chapter 9 because in Romans 9 and then it's next chapter, Romans 10, we have the clearest expression of the doctrine of election in all the Bible. It's not the only. The doctrine of election, once you see election, you see it everywhere. I mean, you just see it all over the place in the scriptures about what God has done to choose to save sinners. But first, G3 conference. We went to the G3 conference, our elders and wives, and we had some, uh, I think it was uh, two elders. Yeah, Andy and Andy and George were not able to come because uh, Andy had the COVID and George and Casey just had their baby, baby number four. No, no, no. Baby number, yeah, baby number four. And uh, we've got so many babies running around, I lose count on who has how many. And I'm, I'm pretty decent with the names, but sometimes it can be difficult. You know what I'm talking about, pastors. But we had a great time with our elders and wives, and we went down to G3, and it's just a bunch of rowdy Baptists, and met people and had a good time and laughed, and it was awesome. It's one of those things that you walk away from and you just thank the Lord for because it was so great. Jordan and I, we brought Providence along, and Providence did a really good job. It was hard for her. It was long days. We actually didn't get to hear John MacArthur live because we had to go back to the Airbnb to watch it there with everybody because we were just so beat from the day. We were walking with Providence. Either Jordan was holding her or I was holding her the whole time. So even though it was great that she was there with us, that can be tiring. And I tell you what, being in a conference and sitting through five or six sessions in a row, that can be exhausting. If you get a chance, I'd encourage you to watch the sessions. They were really good, and overall, you know at a conference, some of the best things are just hanging out, meeting people, and having a good time with the bookstore. Got to spend time with Pat at Banner of Truth a little bit, and meet Jeff Johnson from Free Grace Press, and we worked on a deal, hopefully, of partnership with them here in the near future, so be on the lookout with that. I'm trying to work out on a a deal where we do a giveaway and a percent discount, and also something really interesting in the works of the Banner of Truth, tried to get... MLJ Trust and the Banner to work on getting the Ephesians series published in the United States. It's never been published in the United States through the Banner of Truth because the rights are held by Lady Catherwood or somebody within the MLJ Trust. And so we're trying to get that worked out. And it was neat that I got to be a part of that conversation between Pat and the Trust. It was just really cool. Pat is the Banner of Truth guy. All right, now let's talk about the doctrine of election. Let's change gears here. Now, this doctrine has been maligned. It's been called confusing or controversial. And let me just say a few things up front, and then let's just see if that's not true as I work through this. I think the doctrine of election is one of the clearest teachings in all of the Bible. I just think it's really clear. Uh, I think it's really difficult for a lot of people at first because grace always is. Grace offends before it delights. Now, many have said that, but I think it's so true. And when we talk about election, we're talking about the grace of God. We're talking about God doing something that he didn't have to do. In fact, we're talking about God doing something that not only did he not have to do it, we were ill-deserving of him doing it for us. I mean, we, we didn't deserve anything from God because last week we talked about the sinfulness of mankind. The universal sinfulness of mankind is on display throughout the whole world. It has been since the beginning of time. And without getting into the infralapsarian versus super, superlapsarian debate, what we do know is that all of mankind chose to rebel and we were all with Adam that day in the garden. You know what? God decided to do something and he chose a bride For his son. He chose to save people before they were even born, before the foundation of the earth. This is Ephesians chapter 1, but we're going to specifically look at Romans chapter 9. And what I want to do beforehand is do a couple affirmations, or at least one affirmation, before we get into the objections that we see right in chapter 9. And I just want to say on the front end, a lot of times people push back against the doctrine of election because they run with philosophical conclusions that the scriptures don't bring us to. And so the idea is if, if God elects or chooses who's going to be saved, Then, why do we need to evangelize? How can that even be a thing? And we get into these philosophical knots that the scriptures don't invite us into, but philosophy does. And one of the things I said last week is that biblical theology is so much better than philosophy because we get to say yes and yes so often and get invited into mystery so often because the scriptures invite us into this mystery. Because in Romans chapter 10, we hear these words, and this is one of the reasons we're gonna we we hear an objection about. Well, this is for the nations. This is about nations. This is, this is not about an individuals. But the next chapter, chapter ten, says everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Is that specifically directed to nations or to individuals? Well, that's directed to individuals. That's talking about individual repentance and faith. So evangelism matters, and the scriptures are clear from one chapter to the next that election does not mean evangelism doesn't matter. The second affirmation that I want to talk about. That to be saved, it requires not just election, but because of that election, the fruit of that, and this is this chain reaction, the order of salvation, this chain reaction that God has set in place that you see at the end of Romans chapter 8, is that those who are elected come to the point where they have to repent and believe, and those who are truly born again will be saved. It's not like you can be born again, and but not a part of the elect. Okay, The elect and those who are born again those who are born of the Spirit, those who are circumcised of heart, are the exact same group. It's a one-to-one comparison. So there is no idea that, well, what if you believed and repented and followed Jesus your whole life and found out you are not elect? Well, there's no such thing as that because those who repent and believe and follow the Lord Jesus Christ, it's a one-to-one comparison. Those are the elect. It's a chain reaction. All that God has chosen will come to Him. Okay, so now there's a lot of things that I've already said, like even that. All that God has chosen will come to him. That comes directly from Romans chapter 6. All that the Father has given me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will in no way cast out. Or Not Romans 6. That comes from John 6. But there's a lot of things that I'm saying here that I want to want you to see in Romans chapter 9. And let's just talk about the doctrine of election from this chapter and then connect some of these dots. Okay. Verse 6. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Pause. This verse gives us insight into an Israel within Israel. Not all Israel is Israel. You have the natural bloodline of the Jews. And then within the natural bloodline of the Jews, within that chosen people, apparently there's an Israel within Israel. Verse 7 says it in a different way. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Then in verse 8, this means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as his offspring, that are counted as offspring. Those are some pretty astounding statements. Within Israel, God's chosen people. Everyone was chosen in a general way, like the ethnic Jews were God's chosen people. We all know that, right? That was the people of God in the Old Testament. But here we find that within Israel, there was another Israel. There was a subgroup, an Israel within Israel. There were children of the promise within the children of the flesh. So even though that there were people like in Like in John chapter 8 or just in the Gospels in general, when John the Baptist was talking to them or Jesus was talking to them, he would say, hey, just because you're a child of Abraham according to the flesh doesn't mean that you're actually a child of promise. It doesn't actually mean that you're a child of God. And this is an important distinction to make as we get down to the rest of this chapter because when we get into Jacob and Esau, we have to understand that they were both naturally Israel. They were both children of Abraham. Jacob and Esau were both of the chosen nation. And yet, we have this example of a nation within a nation within these two people. So how do you end up being a child of the promise? That's the big question. How do you become a child of the promise? We don't want to be just in the natural bloodline of the Jews. We don't just want to be the visible church, just saying we have a confession of faith and not actually being born again. We want to be children of the promise. And we're going to be told how that happens. How does the Israel within Israel become the Israel within Israel? How do you become a child of the promise? And this is where we're going to get to this doctrine of unconditional election. The conditions are only within God. They're not within men. Now you might say, well, I don't like this, or this is frustrating, or we're we're gonna get to these objections here in a minute. Here's what I wanna say. As I'm reading through this, the two objections, the two questions that are gonna pop up, I guarantee you will be the objections that you either have initially, or that you will one day have, or have had at some point in your past. These two objections are universal because these are the anticipated objections of the Holy Spirit to this teaching. In other words, when when you're hearing the doctrine of election, these two things are gonna come up to your mind, they're gonna come in your heart, and they're gonna be frustrating and God's going to anticipate that. He's going to tell you what those objections are. Verse 9. For this is what was what the promise said, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So we have these distinctions between Jacob and Esau. The older will serve the younger. So there was no way that the younger was going to serve the older. And as it was written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. These distinctions, love and hate. Jacob I loved. This is how the children of promise come to fruition. God has to choose somebody to be a child of the promise. That's how you become an Israel within Israel. What ends up happening is inside. You're like, okay, well, that means that that's powerless. Well, then this is like fatalism or something. And it's not fatalism. This is biblical theology. This is not some doomsday nihilistic kind of thing. There really is joy in this when you see it. Notice the objection that's going to come. As it is written, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I hated. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Now, if you're reading Romans chapter 9 in a way that does not lead you to question, gosh, that sounds unjust. You're not reading it the right way. You're just simply not reading it the right way. And one of the objections would immediately come up when they hear, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, they want to say, well, that's about nations. Well, we've already been talking about nations, but now we're talking about the Israel within Israel. This isn't about nations. This is about individuals. This is about who is saved, who is really the people of God, who is going to end up repenting and believing and following the Lord Jesus, who is going to be saved by God from their own rebellious choice against God. And remember, the very next chapter, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. These are promises in the scriptures. And these go together. And you might well, we'll say, how did these go together? I don't know. But they do. They absolutely do. The, so this is about individuals. This is about Jacob and Esau. Not first about nation. And the natural response to that is going to be, gosh, that sounds unjust. But God answers that for us. What should we say then? Is there any justice on God's part? Because that's what everybody's thinking. And then he says, By no means. And here's his justification for that. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God whom has mercy. And praise God. I'm I'm saying, and you should be saying, praise God. Pastors, as you're explaining this, or maybe you're on the fence, or whoever's listening in, I mean, guys, it doesn't depend on your human will or exertion. And praise God, because we've already found out that human will and exertion is bent towards evil. If it depends on human will or exertion, we've all chosen to rebel against God with Adam. We're doomed. But this depends on God, and he has mercy. We are merciless, and yet God has mercy. Such good news. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this person I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. We start thinking about Pharaoh as Pharaoh is introduced. I just read through the book of Exodus, and right from the very beginning, we're told that God will harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, certainly, Pharaoh hardens his own heart, but we see from the beginning, it's first said that God would harden Pharaoh's heart. And you know what that means? It means that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's what it means. There's no secret like meaning and scriptural or textual origami that you can do that ends up coming out. Well, actually, it doesn't mean that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But it mean, actually, actually, it does mean that because that's what it says. God hardens hardened Pharaoh's heart. He has mercy in whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And that is a universal principle across the board in ages and generations. This is how God functions. He is the potter. We are the clay. We get told here in a minute. Now the natural objection, the question number two that rises up inside of people when we hear that is going to be, well, then Pharaoh should be innocent. This is not Pharaoh's fault. This seems like it was God. Oh my goodness. What, what in the world? Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist God's will? Because, again, that's what everyone thinks when they first hear about the doctrine of election or about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Well, then Pharaoh is just this innocent bystander. This isn't really Pharaoh's fault. So then the question is, why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? Verse 20. I love this. This is just what we get to the question. It's not like we get this philosophical answer back that just makes everything clear to us. But we get thrown on the bigness and the glory of God. Verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Here's the sad thing that happens with the doctrine of election. Many people answer back to God. There are many people say, I don't like that. That's unclear. Guys, this is not unclear. Again, this is one of the most clear chapters in all the Bible. It's just difficult. People don't like it. And people want to actually say, if that's true, then God is unjust and nobody should be at fault for their sin. That's literally what people say. And what you might be feeling or what your people might be feeling when you've been preaching this and you have responses from your people and you're at the coffee shop on Monday or Tuesday and people are having a difficult time with the doctrine of election, that's what people do is they talk back to God. They answer back to him and they say, no, you are unjust. And if this is true, then people shouldn't be at fault. But verse 20 goes on. It says, "Will what is molded say to his molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And again, so many people answer back and say, No, God doesn't have that right. That's mean. He doesn't have the right to do that. I don't believe that. Nope, I can't accept that. Well, guys, you're in opposition. You're talking back to the God of the universe. This is how things are. In the mess that is human sinfulness, the sinfulness of mankind, in the in our gargoyle worm state, former glory set aside, yet still remaining the image of God, somehow or another, God in His infinite mercy decided, I am choosing a wife for my son. They're not going to meet any condition beforehand because they're going to be in sin. They're not trying to wiggle themselves out of it. I'm going to choose them while they're in the midst of the pit, while they're in their sin, while they're in their rebellion. I'm going to choose to save some. One of the things that Tom Schreiner says about this in commenting on this passage, he said that what's shocking to the New Testament reader, what's shocking to the Apostle Paul, when you understand the sinfulness of mankind, is not that God would not choose Esau. The shocking thing is that God would actually choose Jacob. The shocking thing is that God would actually save anybody. Because when you understand human rebellion, it's so shocking. When we're not catechized by the world, when we're drinking in a biblical worldview, the shocking thing is that God would have mercy on anybody because we don't deserve it. We've rebelled against him and yet he has been merciful and kind and he has chosen, elected, predestined people to life. And he has passed over doing that for everybody. He has not done that for everybody. And he did this in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Christians who rebel against predestination, Christians who rebel against election, and pastors who will not preach it because they don't know how or they're nervous, they're going to get fired. You are missing laying a platter before your people of riches of glory. This is riches of glory that's found here. And he prepared these beforehand and prepared us for glory. And we're taking that platter of glory and we're putting it to the back and we're nervous and embarrassed. And guys, I think this doctrine here is one of the most glorious doctrines in all the scriptures, and it's avoided like the plague. And I think it's time for God's men to preach unashamedly what God has clearly spoken because we're not allowed to be ashamed of God's word. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening. I hope this has been helpful. There's so much more that could be said. My goodness, this is only like a 18-minute podcast. There's so much more that could be said about this. So if you have any questions or thoughts, please feel free to reach out to me. would love to continue this conversation, and I hope this has been helpful to you. Guys, have a good week.